Today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today to start your free 14-day trial, and for a limited time, you can get 20% off an annual membership if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. Uh, welcome back, Andy. How was your... How was your time away my time away that was cryptic when i left and now doesn't have to be cryptic uh it was it was an experience that was uh that was a, a week i will never forget sure sure we said could, could we, did, i don't know if anyone cracked the code last week uh, <laughs> i actually i haven't listened back to the episode yet i'm sorry so i didn't know how much you alluded to in it we, we we just said that, you know, you, you were away for some reasons that we can't answer. There are some <laughs> questions that we can't answer yet, but if the answers to those questions will become revealed in the future, then you will know the answers to those questions. But until then, the question... So, um, a few so, of you, uh, I guess some of the smarter listeners, did crack the code. <laughs> did they tweet <laughs> at, at you? What, what were you doing, Andy? Well, the, the, the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions taped in, in Culver City two weeks ago. And they told us they weren't going to allow us to to announce it or, or announce who the host was for that until I think they were going to wait until two days before it aired. And everyone's like, that's kind of odd. And then as soon as we wrapped taping, they just tweeted, hey, Buzzy Cohen's the host. And here's the collage of all the faces who were in it. So maybe they were just protecting against if someone had gotten sick and they'd had to put in an alternate or something. All um, right. And once well, they well, recorded the, it, the, so. people, the people who were going to be on it had already... The internet had already cracked that code because it's it's well, the it's, people who won the most over the previous segment, right? So, so they, it's to, like you can just work it out. Well, to call it a code when the Jeopardy site has their Tournament of Champions tracker that lists the top fifteen players, so it's it's right. basically that. Here's who's going to be. It turns it. out Jeopardy fans are quite uh, savvy that way. <laughs> just <laughs> reading what they say is the tournament. I mean, yeah, I think all the waiting on announcing is purely about you know if somebody happened to have to bow out or be, I don't know, become ineligible for some reason. But um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty locked in thing. It was, it was the last class of contestants of the Trebek era. So it was from about the last two years going up until the last person who played um, before Alex passed away. And so it was very weird because we obviously shot with all the COVID protocols and most of the class of 15, 12 of them had shot pre COVID. So it was their first time dealing with that, but three people um, I, I realize I, if, if nothing else, I'm, I'm in the books, I, I think, for Jeopardy lore in that only Kevin Walsh, Ryan Hemmel, and myself are the only three Jeopardy Tournament of Champions players who've never played a game in, of Jeopardy in front of an audience. Oh, interesting. In the history of the show. Yeah, yeah. It's a very odd way to do it. But um, yeah, it was a trip. And it was hosted by Buzzy Cohen, who won the tournament two or three years ago. Um, which that would really be why fun. I didn't recognize the name when you said it. All uh, right. Yeah, he was a fan favorite, flashy dresser, fun guy. Okay, host. I think I know. I know the guy you mean. Yeah, with glasses. Yeah. Um, and they put us up in the Culver Hotel, which is a famous old Hollywood hotel, where uh, most famous for the fact that they they housed some of the cast of The Wizard of Oz there, and there was a Munchkin orgy that is oh, legendary. Well. We should introduce our guest. So yes, that let's do he that. Can yeah. weigh in on the Munchkin orgy <laughs> and, and other things because because uh, th- this is one that's been a long time coming. Because one of the few other comedy and science venn diagram middle people that <laughs> sentence was backwards but it, brian mallow hey brian hey matt and andy how's it going andy what is what so you're a jeopardy champion what I'm, i i won four games last fall and then i just taped the this new tournament of champions 
championship um, two weeks ago. That'll and air. that's the bit we're not allowed to know but about. But you don't you. know if you could succeed under the pressure of a live audience situation. I mean, I think the COVID <laughs> pressure is kind of higher and weirder. It would have been much yeah. more fun to be in front of an audience. Yeah. And, you know, and you're a comedian, right? I mean, I, I downplayed that. I never said that on the show because so, no. I, didn't, I didn't want that. Uh, I just said writer. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> and podcast host, you got a, you got a probably science plug in there. So That's thanks true. for doing that. Good. Yeah, Alex was Alex was uh, asking me about the fact that we had Neil deGrasse Tyson on because he's done categories for them. So. Oh, and it was with Alex Trebek, so that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I got to be on last fall. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, all time bucket list. Wow. So you were on, and then he died of cancer. Interesting. Two weeks later, he died the week before my episode. My episodes aired, so it was also kind of a weird time to be like. Correlation is not causation. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, very strange time, but also very amazing that he was so with it and sharp, yeah. given how sick he Like, he nailed it that whole day. They taped five episodes in a day, and he only had to do one pickup just because he wanted to reword some question. Wow. Like, it was just, yeah. Ridiculous. Pro. Amazing. Well, but by the way, while we're talking about plugs of the podcast, I didn't mention this last week because you weren't on the show, but... Um, thank you, Andrew Davis, who uh, plugged our show in The Guardian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was an article in The Guardian that was just a bunch of people <laughs> recommending podcasts, and we got on the list thanks to Andrew. So cheers for that. I presume you're listening to this episode <laughs> now. It'd be weird to recommend it in a national newspaper and then just, nah, I'm done now. <laughs> so, so thanks, mate. And thank yeah. you, anyone who found us as a result of that article as well. Hey, new people. Um. So, so were there still remnants of the Wizard of Oz cast members <laughs> in this hotel? Well, it's the hotel was closed is closed to the public, so it was only the fifteen of us in the hotel. Not even what? anybody working oh. at the desk. So it's just us with like four empty rooms between each of us because they even wanted to keep us distanced in our rooms somehow. Wow. So, so what is it? What is it the rest of the time then? What is it normally? Uh, I don't know if pre-COVID it was open or if it's been closed for a while. I, I don't know. It might have just been COVID that's keeping it closed. But um, when I mentioned it to people, the people have said, oh, yeah, I've gone to their – I guess the first floor um, is sometimes sort of like a cafe live music thing. Like People are like, oh, yeah, it's the kind of place you take your mom when she's visiting to go see jazz or something. Like, oh, I didn't because know. Because nothing mums like more than munchkins fucking. <laughs> Well, it's a cool-looking building. It's also kind of like the Flatiron. It's an angled building like that. And I guess uh, Charlie Chaplin owned it and at some point lost it in a bet to John Wayne for a dollar or something. It's one of those kind of like Hollywood right. stories. Charlie Chaplin. There's a lot of properties around LA that have Charlie Chaplin connections. Yeah. Like someone I know used to live in the bungalows as well, which I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's opposite the stu- it's opposite his old studio and he, he used to own them. And there's this, this little community of little cute like, bungalows the, the and stor- storybook style houses yeah like, but yeah, like that's really yeah that's on my street that's on formosa hmm. around the street my west hollywood apartment is was that's like two blocks north of my apartment on that's formosa. right and, the, and, and then, the formosa cafe as well was used to be like everyone who was in his films would come over and drink in that cafe and bar the next straight after the shoot and and the and the jim henson studios with with kermit that was the chaplain studios on la brea block or two east right I yeah, believe. I think he he owned a lot of the town, Chaplin, at yeah. one point. He was pretty famous. <laughs> he did all right. He did not fact. so bad. Any, any Until of... talkies came along, oh, but he actually no, talkies. he did some. He did, there's that classic speech that that we always in this era of fucked up politics. Um, you know that from the dictator. There's this great speech. That, yes, uh, that he did. So he made the leap to the talkies, but ah. yeah. 
Some people didn't. So, yeah. so Brian, let's let's talk about your background in science because we always ask yes. by we always start by asking our guests that, and you have a more detailed answer than most people. Yeah. So I'm not a scientist, but science really was, you know, one of my, like my first love. It, you know, when I try to back engineer it, I usually think that I started with science fiction, and the science fiction I liked was the hard SF, the, where the science matters. Isaac right. Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and this guy Larry Niven. These were the people I really Heinlein that I grew mm-hmm. up reading, and I loved that. And I Asimov and Clarke wrote nonfiction. Asimov wrote more nonfiction than than science fiction. And they were great explainers. And Asimov wrote not only clearly, but with personality and even humor. And so um me and my geeky, my couple of good friends, Chuck and Albert, like we were always reading um extracurricularly. So we were learning physics and science stuff from these guys outside of school. And uh, so science fiction and science. But in the end, I also, my friend and I, we wanted to write songs. We wanted to be rock stars and we wanted to be maybe rock star by day, scientist by night kind of thing. But, um, and uh, yeah, some kind of cross, I like saying some kind of cross between like Freddie Mercury and Einstein without the sexual connotations of Einstein. Uh, I think his hair got that kinky, that yeah. sort of thing. But, um, but, um, in the end, I chose, you know, and here's something. Sometimes I would say, because in addition to performing now, I give science communication talks to scientists. And I would, I once accidentally said something about how instead of going into science, I decided to do something creative. And that was me Ooh. misspeaking. That was totally <laughs> misspeaking. It's not how I felt even then at the time. But, but just to be clear, it's like scientists have to be very creative thinkers. That's very imaginative. I just wanted to do something in the arts with writing and and uh i ended up yeah i think the uh, difference got, is yeah. scientists have to be creative but also rigorous i think is the yeah boy, are, are you saying that i didn't that i wasn't <laughs> being rigorous incapable of being rigorous <laughs> <laughs> sorry brian scientists have to be and you know before we record i was telling uh just a little line that i would sometimes like saying is that uh i thought about becoming a scientist but apparently that's not enough. You know, <laughs> just thinking about it, you got to take the test, do well and everything. But I was a good student. I just chose, I loved science. I never stopped loving science, but I just wanted to do something else. I got an, I went to University of Texas in Austin. I got a liberal arts degree. I was out for a year and then I went into TV production and I started getting some video skills. And it was while I was doing that that I tried stand up comedy for the first time for the funniest person in Austin contest. Uh-huh. In Austin. And I was hooked. And I'll tell you, um, and so from the beginning, my, my comedy was geeky though, because I was a geek and I liked science. So it took me decades to come up with the phrase science comedian, cause which, um, uh, but I was already doing it. So it was right. never a calculated thing. It was like one of my old friends, when I finally came up with this phrase, he was like, we knew you were the science comedian 10 years ago, but I wish it had crystallized sooner. But I was always like hinting at it and doing science geeky stuff. But I was also doing all the sex, drugs and rock and roll that sure, any comedian yeah. talks about <laughs> and an occasional Bush joke or something. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> not very political, though. But uh <laughs> But yeah, I had a weird path through. I love science. I tried some other things. And what's what's really great is that this transition of um I didn't plan to be a science comedian. I just realized that's what I'm doing. If I cut this other shit away, what's left is all science comedy. And 
that led to other science communication stuff. And eventually I got this opportunity to make science videos at Time Magazine. So all of a sudden I'm bringing back the video skills that I had abandoned. And so there it is. All of a sudden here I am. I'm a comedian, but I'm using the video skills and I'm using the science. So it's neat how that all came together. Which yeah. also, we, we got connected originally through right. mutual friend Emery Emery and friend of the show Emery. Bec- Old comedy friend of mine. Who, that yeah, of course, that would track as well because he used to do a lot of stuff. You started in Texas and he would have done a lot of stuff around yep. the South back in the day. He came, to, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure, I don't remember how we met, but it was probably him coming to Austin. Him yeah, because he was... James Inman, but okay, somehow yeah, that would be oh, yeah. well. Inman <laughs> definitely spent a lot of time around Austin. Yeah, I was in Austin for twelve years. Right, and those guys came and we became friends, and then I would. Oh, so yeah, we'd know, I'd know a lot of the same of that lot. Yeah. So you would have overlapped with Brendan Walsh there, presumably, and then Norm I, you know, as Brendan well. came a little later, and but I know Brendan, uh, but not as much because I think that me and Tom Hester moved to Los Angeles. And I miss some some of the people that you might name. Right. Like Brendan really uh, came up a little later, but yeah, I love him. Uh, what about Norm Wilkinson? Don't really know him. Okay, interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm going to stop throwing names at you. <laughs> yeah, that's but, right. Um, I uh, can dodge him or... Yeah. <laughs> well, we were the, talking... Yeah, Austin's got a great comedy scene. Oh, yeah. Would you have overlapped as well with the uh, Austin Stories crew? Oh, yeah. So, like Laura, well, first of all, and Chip. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all those guys. Chip, Brad Pope. Uh, he's the one that I'm still in touch with the most. Um, and, well, you know, Johnny Hardwick didn't end up doing that because, but he was being considered for that. And, and when, when, when MTV came, we all auditioned for that. And so oh, who was it? It was, so they were interested in Johnny, but I think, but he didn't end up doing, but he ended up on King of the Hill as both a writer and a voice. He's that's the a, voice of um, that's in the long run a better gig. <laughs> yes, I mean that's two better gigs actually. Yeah, you know what I mean? that, like, but although that's the, a house the, with a pool's the, worth of a better gig. Yeah, but Austin stories got that, that was really like it got them a lot of notoriety and achievement. Like a lot of people, it's it's sort of not a household name, but it's, to it's a lot a of hip of people, thing. they totally in a cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was that was Laura House as well and Howard Kramer. Yeah. So yeah. So I know all of them from back then. Yeah, wasn't it MTV's first scripted show? Mm. I think it Was has, it? yeah, I think it has the distinction of, of that. And, and I think it's hard to find it any place legally, but Chip, Chip Pope has been sort of selling, not bootlegs of it, but uh, for fans who want to see this really fun, quirky show. It was like the height of like 90s sort of yeah. slackerdom. Yeah. And they were all great. So I remember we all auditioned and uh, those were the ones they were interested. I feel like they were interested in Johnny, but I think it was around, maybe it was around the same time that he was being considered for the King of the Hill stuff. I, I don't remember why, but it ended yet. Yeah, so Chip, Kramer, Laura, isn't there somebody else? I think they were the main three. Yeah. Um, A I'm couple other sure people make guest yeah. appearances and stuff. Yeah. But, but back to the science thing, it's interesting. I think before we were recording, we were talking about the fact that, you know, both of us probably ended up through our, or all three of us, I'm sure, through our uh, version of a, of a science career, probably interacting with more yes. scientists than if we had actually gone yeah, into a like, science field. I know. Like, so I once, because I'm a comedian, but the science comedian, I'd perform at a museum in DC and I ended up getting invited to the 50th anniversary of NASA and Stephen Hawking came and gave a talk and I got to, uh, I got to speak to him. I got to meet him. And I just think that if I had become an astrophysicist, 
what are the odds I would have met Stephen Hawking? Right. right <laughs> but yeah. I became a comedian and you would think the odds would be way worse. <laughs> but somehow, I like, would I have this many friends that are scientists yeah. if I'd even become a scientist? Although, although he was notorious. He used to hang around a lot of comedy stuff. Really? Like I, I didn't know that. Hawking? Yeah. Do you, well, do you remember? I don't know if you saw... Uh, it was the Simpsons panel at Bridgetown, which I imagine, Andy, you would have seen because <laughs> you ran Bridgetown but, and you're a Simpsons fan. But uh, I remember Dana Gould talking about how there was just a period of time when they sort of couldn't get rid of Stephen Hawking. Like, he was just... Really? Because right. he, have... he came to record an episode. Uh, like, he did a... I think he did a couple of guest voices, but then he was still in LA and just, you know, loved the Simpsons. So he would just sort of still be there. <laughs> just... That's so funny. I, I know. You know what? One time when I lived in San Francisco, um, Hawking had a private gig, like a corporate gig. He was in town to speak at a big science. I can't quite remember the name. I used to know the company. But him and his crew came to Cobb's Comedy Club that night. I was not there and I yep. was so disappointed because I felt like, oh, my God, of all the comedians that could be there in the local scene. Totally. I'm the one who would most want to perform. But, in but front again, of that hockey. totally yeah. tracks. He's a he's a huge comedy fan. Right. Now, so obviously, but um, I, as I recall, the headliner, I, I don't recall who the other people were, but the headliner was Brian Regan. So you can't go wrong with oh, Brian okay. Regan. And I don't remember who the other acts were. And I was so jealous. And um, but my friend Kevin Kataoka. You're, oh, oh, you're, I, you're, I know yeah, Kevin. He's another one. He had been telling yeah. me to get a hold of you for years, and I never did. Kevin's great. Yeah. Until this Emory Emory thing, he had been saying, "Hey, you should. Matt Kersey has this it's pro science podcast. You should be per." And I, I don't. I think I'd like look you up and then shied away from ever contacting you. Well, uh, <laughs> well, and then we should point out. So th the other connection was Emory has right. been in the process of making, and I, I believe it's now, yeah, pretty much finished. Just like looking for some of the logistics yes. things like distributor and insurance and stuff. But I think I'm pretty sure it's like cut and edited and everything uh, and color corrected and all that stuff. And it, it's called science friction. And it's a, it's a documentary about miscommunication in science hmm. and about how yeah, like cat, like, like not only that, like kind of unethical TV yes. productions. Yeah, e exactly oh. that. Yeah. Sorry. That's a, I, that's a much better way of putting it. So specifically the way that people, in people in the media will misrepresent science uh often sometimes intentionally sometimes unintentionally but it's yeah. how science gets mis misshown on all these uh and misrepresented and i and barely made it into it like you were already in it it was almost finished and in in the course of his research he was looking at one of these shows like I don't know if it's strange evidence or something, a title like that. And then he saw me in an episode because I had done these couple things and they did something really frustrating with me. They, without discussing this with me, they interviewed me about these segments and I didn't like the segments. They kind of tricked me. It's like they were pseudoscience things. They were like... Like, is this some kind of spirit walker? Oh, right. Like, it okay. wasn't right. just weird stuff. They wanted me to, you know, support the idea that there's a big, f a skunk ape that's like a Bigfoot in the <laughs> yeah. swamps and of they Louisiana. Always just they, they want you to kind of, the way they get you, I think, in a lot of these things is they, they ask you to sort of 
pose the question that you then answer in the negative yes. and then they just slice out the second half of your but i don't like that first part they, like i don't <laughs> want to play up that pseudo part that didn't suit me right and like mm, i didn't like it I'll, I'll, i'm happy to come in on the part where we debunk it um so there was this weird tension in all that but then in the end the thing they did is they intro when they, when i get introduced on the show they say brian mallow is a science journalist what and then they say Who's like they explain that my specialty is keeping up with the because ex- this fit one of their stories, something uh. about like the development of AI technology and stuff. So they I'm a science journalist with a specific beat. Right. As opposed to just all. like a comedian with an interest in science. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I hate that. And they first of all, they didn't pay me enough to consider me an actor and you can call me what you want. So they they barely paid me and then they take away identifying me as who i actually am so that doesn't help me right which which <laughs> reflects badly on you as well because now it looks like you are misrepresenting yourself yeah, and, and you'll be the uncredible person promote me as the science comedian in any way it's like it was very frustrating so i barely made it into that and it's kind of funny you know at one part i watched it and there's a part where you say something about my friend brian now that's a fair statement <laughs> Yes, <laughs> at the time that, that had just become that had just but like just become a true statement at the moment that that was recorded. Exactly. Wait, I'm I'm sorry, I'm lost. What? So he, we're both in this documentary. We're, we're both, but just like had just been introduced. So there's a point that I sort of throw to my friend Brian, which oh, yeah, to be oh, fair, oh, oh, we didn't meet. Oh, you know, his bits were recorded, my bits were recorded separately. Yeah, and it was, hugely yeah, unethical something. while we're talking about ethics and science. <laughs> I felt a little funny about it. <laughs> Um, but not quite as bad. But I, yeah, I, so I count that Embry, as a true statement now. Um, and, and Kevin Kataoka. So um, back to the Stephen Hawking story. Um, so Kevin and I were joking about this, about like, what what if you were on stage and you got heckled by Stephen Hawking? And the only thing you could say is, hey, I don't come to where you work and unlock the secrets of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin said that. It was so funny. That's great. I wonder if he even remembers. I've always remembered that. I love that. Yeah, I used to I used to go to the punchline when I lived in San Francisco twenty years ago. And I remember a joke of his about San Francisco that I like put it together twenty years ago. Like, about was the you. beach. About the beach, about Baker Beach, how the San Francisco beaches are the most depressing places on earth. He goes, People come to California. I can't remember it exactly, but you know, they think it's a beach in California, but it's not like the beaches in Southern California. It can be really cold. So you see people walking along the beach like bundled up with an overcoat, their head down, like they're starring in their own antacid commercial. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I lived right by Baker Beach. I was like, that's what that's I see. Like, wait, day. when did you it's live in San Francisco? 2000 and 2001. I lived in the Presidio right after they'd opened it up to the public. Before that, it was just military barracks. We were like in this apartment. I lived was- there. Were you hitting the local scene? I was uh, there. I, didn't, I, hadn't start, I didn't start stand up until I moved oh. to Portland and started in like 2005 okay. or so. But I was a comedy fan. So I'd go see like Hedberg and all oh. kinds of greats at, at the If you line. saw Hedberg around then, wait a minute. Hedberg was so that's another one we could talk about. He was one of my best friends. Oh, I'd love to. Oh man! And yes. he would stay. I was going to say he was probably staying at my ha- apartment when he was working at the Punchline. Was, if he was, it, I don't know when you saw him. It's two thousand or two thousand. He, he was headlining, and Lynn okay. was opening for him. Oh, okay. Well, I was probably there. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Hedberg and I go way back. I when I met him, we met in. This is the probably more than the science, but um, we met in Wichita, Kansas, at a club called slapsticks and i was the middle act and he was the opening act 
And there was a headliner, a woman from Colorado, I think. And he and I really hit it off. And I was starting to get headline work that I could bring an opener, like shitty one-nighters. And I brought him on a bunch of gigs. So until my ex-wife, I had been in more different cities with Mitch. Mitch and I had a lot of adventures in a lot of places. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, not to dwell on the... uh, I never got into heroin. Uh, well, by no. the way, <laughs> but I was going to say this really is kind of why I started comedy. Like I had been thinking about going to open mics for a while, and it was yeah. his his death was sort of the not sort of it was the kick in the pants. I was like, well, life's short. Like so, literally the day after he died, I tried my first open mic. Really, April April first or so, two thousand five. Yeah, and you're like, well, he doesn't need his jokes anymore, right? So, so exactly. I just did all headbird jokes with forever. These. Yeah. You ever think there are jokes that, you know, like, do you remember some jokes from some people that disappeared from comedy and you go, I wish I could reach out and hear that some great jokes and they're just gone. Oh, I think this guy might still be doing it, but an open micer in the L.A. scene like 10 years ago had my favorite joke about the country Chad I've ever heard. He's just like, hey, you know, that there's this country Chad. I, I don't know a thing about it, but I bet they got a hell of a lacrosse team. <laughs> I, You know, there's a joke I love. And interestingly... This comedian from San Francisco, way before my time, Kevin Karoka would remember his last name. But the thing is, he's a male comic and his first name is Kim. And he was a Jeopardy contestant and maybe champion. I don't remember, but this would have been a long time ago and Kevin would know the last name. But I worked with him once somewhere on the road and I've always, he had really intellectual jokes. He had something about having a tattoo that said born to raise consciousness and uh, (laughs) by being in a gang of like existential something. And, uh, but the joke that I was so jealous of, and if I, if you ever hear me tell this joke, it's because I tracked him down and I asked him if I could have it or bought it from him. Here's my impression of Galileo's mother. Oh, so I suppose you're right and the whole world is wrong. <laughs> I just always love that. It's a great impression. That's great. Um, the joke I remember. Kim somebody. I, I can't even remember. I think it was a comic called Al Stick who started a bit after me in London and then just stopped doing it. I think it was Al, but it might have been another comic. But but it's definitely someone who's just disappeared from the scene yeah. in, the, in the UK. And the joke was... um. They say there's no such thing as werewolves, but if if that's the case, how do you explain a man turning into a wolf? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a perfect joke? <laughs> so dumb and yeah. great. Yeah. There was a guy in Austin and he he went by his name was Speedy. And it was ironic because he was real low energy, like Stephen Wright or something. And he had little jokes like that. And I remember this one where he says, I was walking across the street. And uh, I saw this dead bird that had been smooshed. It's like, what was this bird thinking? Run? <laughs> <laughs> it had been run over. I forgot. Yeah. And uh, what was this bird thinking? Run? And that always stuck with me. And he said something about I went to a sidewalk sale, said uh, everything reduced one half. I bought a toothbrush this big. <laughs> um, yeah. That's well, all I really remember. Well, while we're talking about creativity and drugs, I'm going to put a story. I don't. You might not be able to read this because I think it might be behind a paywall, but I'll see... Uh, if you look in the on the screen, by the way, they all, all the stories pop up in front of you there, Brian. Oh, but, they do. Okay. Um, oxygen-starved cavemen created high art. Mm. That's uh, did you, you like that little pun that the Times put in the high headline? art? High art. Sure. You get it? Um. So, oh, good God! I d- okay. I I'm already regretting this. I <laughs> I think when I first read this article, I skipped over the first line as well. But even by even by science, popular science stories, this is a bad opening. I mean, pun. wait, 
if Brian hasn't clicked on the link yet, maybe I we have. can see. Oh, okay. So you could probably you could probably guess what the uh, what the opening pun might be if it's from this era. And they're talking oh, about, uh, I no. see. Yeah. Perhaps, Perhaps. we we'll just call it the Stone Age. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Prehistoric cave painters were so starved of oxygen deep underground that they may have been euphoric and hallucinating when they got to work, claim archaeologists. A study well, spe- They may have been. They may have been. They may, may have, have been. You can't prove they have There's it. a lot they of speculation were. there. Is it, is it like when people now watch like kids' cartoons? You go, Man, they've got to be smoking weed to come yeah. up with this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just can't. You just, it's crazy. You could, right. only be, you could only be on weed, right? Um... <laughs> You know, there's that, I think there's a really fascinating topic here, which is that I feel like you, sometimes you think that about people, but but brains are bio are the brain chemistry is different. So sometimes I feel like some you know one person has to be on acid to produce that, but another person doesn't have to be. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I, Bob Odenkirk has talked many times about how much he hates when Mister Show fans would ask him, "Oh my God, how, how high were you?" He's like, right. "We were the exact opposite of high. We were busting our asses, writing around the right. clock to get this show together." Right. <laughs> That's probably my all-time favorite sketch comedy show. Oh, same. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, so a study speculates that not unlike the hippies of the 1960s, <laughs> the Oh god, this is such a this is in the Times, the London Times, and it's it's been written to appeal to a Times reader. So who yeah. does the hippies, the hippies of the nineteen sixties, you may remember. Right. Uh, the artists made a deliberate effort to harness the mind altering effects of hypoxia so they could, quote, connect with the cosmos. <laughs> Oh, so that's a thing that just hippies did in the 60s, yes. but at no other period in history Never. has any other group ever <laughs> tried to alter their mind in this any is, way. This is literally, yeah, for a, for a period of just shy of 10 years, people <laughs> had this thing that they tried. Uh-huh. And that's how we got like the Beatles and, and Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. And then in 1970, well, why don't we do that again? Well, yeah. and then we got disco and we got. Yeah. No, it all stopped in 1970. It's science. Yeah, but disco, disco was not done. D- no more. This right. has gone too far. Let's just stick to some colorful alcohol drinks and, <laughs> and wear flares. And that's it. <laughs> so. Israeli researchers observed that many Paleolithic cave paintings in Europe are hundreds of meters from caves' entrances, either in chambers accessed via narrow passages or in the passages themselves. These spaces were not used for daily domestic activities, raising questions about why early artists ventured into such claustrophobic corners to get creative. Oh, look at that alliteration going on there. Hmm. Claustrophobic corners to get creative. Creative. Creative claustrophobic corners. In a paper in Time and Mind, the Journal of Archaeology, Consciousness and Culture, the researchers argue that entering these deep, dark areas... Wow, another... You are really into your alliteration here, Mark Bridge (laughs) History Correspondent. You exceeded my ability to see the article. There, I, I, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's the paywall kicks in right there. Yeah, all right, I, I got you covered. <laughs> uh, entering these deep dark areas was a conscious choice motivated by an understanding of the transformative nature of an underground oxygen depleted space. Specifically, the team believed that oxygen deprivation induced a state very similar to when you are taking drugs. This is basically something that every sort of. 11 year old has discovered yeah (laughs) summer camp sort of games uh yeah yeah. put your head between your legs hyperventilate and stand up quickly and i'll push you in the chest like that's what's going on right now around till you're dizzy and stuff like yeah 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 now now try and paint on this rock the paintings and engraved (laughs) images created across a wide area from between forty thousand and 
14,000 years ago, depict animals such as mammoths, bison, and is it Ibex or Ibex? I think it's Ibe. I feel uh, like it's Ibex, but I don't really know. Anyway, whatever it is, they were drawn on the cave by slightly oxygen-depleted high people. While they have been celebrated for their artistic merits, their origin and purpose remain contested. Hmm. To study whether the physiological effects of oxygen deprivation may have played a role, the researchers ran a series of computer simulations based on the sites of artwork deep within cave systems in France and Spain, which include uh, Rofignac in the Dordogne, where paintings and engravings are about 730 meters from the entrance, hmm. and El Castillo hmm. in Can- uh, Cantabria, where most depictions are within narrow two-meter passages about 200 meters from the entrance. The models indicate that oxygen would have fallen rapidly to levels inducing hypoxia, which is a shortfall of oxygen. Yeah. Does Um, the oxygen fall off just going a little bit into a cave like that? I guess. I feel like... like Oh, because because they would have carried... Here we go. The next sentence explains when they they would have carried burning torches or lamps into the spaces. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So in many of the scenario studies, oxygen concentration, normally 21%, would fall below 18%. I didn't realize that's that's as slim a drop as you could have before hypoxia happens. And that's within 15 minutes it would have happened. And in the cases of low ceilings, they would fall below 11%, leading to severe hypoxia. Oh, that's, yeah. Similar to that associated with acute mountain sickness. I think they're very close, but here's what I think. Um, (laughs) First of all, there's this thing about paleontology that's so challenging where you try to piece together what might have caused this. And you're trying to imagine things from bones and stuff or from these paintings. Like, for all you know, that's just that's the theater. You know, the kitchen is in here. The living room is in here. And that's the theater where we look at the pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just what we've devoted that space to that because it has the best walls for it. For all you like, that's the only wall we could put a projector, you know, a screen on. That's the only wall that that's this is where it's going to be. But the other thing I just thought of is that maybe the hypoxia, it's for the viewer oh. to come down and enjoy the oh, yeah. magical cave paintings. They go down there. They get high. And enjoy the art. <laughs> and he, here's here's the crazy thing, right? Uh, you know you know that drumming that we're into, right? If you start the drumming at exactly the same time that you start looking at the pictures, they line up <laughs> perfectly. Exactly. How is right. that possible? <laughs> right when the lion roars, you have to start the drums. That's funny. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, like how can we know it might be as simple as have you ever seen an incredible documentary by errol morris are you familiar? oh yeah it's called fast cheap and out of control yeah oh, it's oh, you know. really great oh. it's beautifully shot and there's a segment about where they were trying to understand they were trying to create a museum exhibit for naked mole rats and they they laid it out where they wanted them to be in this window but the mole rats weren't hanging out where they wanted them to hang out because they didn't understand the specifics, the way mole rats design their habitats. It's like you're trying, you want them to hang out there, but that's the bathroom. Like you don't understand <laughs> that you're trying to create something for them and they have their own system. So you have to, if you wanted that them to hang out in the window, you have to bend to them. You can't oh, get them to bend to you. What's it yeah. called? What, what's the documentary called? It's called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. I highly recommend it. It's no narration. Everyone speaks to the camera and it's four characters and it's and and at first you're like what possibly connects these people a guy who's a specialist in naked mole rats a roboticist <laughs> a topiary gardener and a lion tamer but what connects them is that 
It's all about controlling or mimicking nature. A lion tamer is trying to control a lion, you know, safely. A topiary gardener is trying to get these shrubs and things to to grow the way he wants them to. The roboticist was making robots that mimic animal, you know, those kind of little robots, autonomous ones that mimic animal movements. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then um, the naked mole rat trying to understand and kind of going to battle with like, we're trying to control this, but we have to understand that we have to take into account its behaviors, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting and it's beautifully shot. Errol Morris, a documentary, fast, cheap, and out of control. Interesting. It looks like it's still available online. Cool. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, that's, that's that's interesting. Oh yeah, it looks like there may be a uh, looks like there may be a slightly less than licit um, Vimeo link that is mm-hmm. one of the first things that comes up when I googled <laughs> uh, it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it looks like it's up on the internet and fairly easy to see for people who want to watch it. Um, the fast, cheap, and out of control part was an idea of why send one robot to Mars? What if we sent a hundred little tiny autonomous ones and you could spread them out all over Mars? So like none of them have that great a capability, but you have they're fast and they're cheap and they're out of control. Autonomous. Interesting. Okay. I don't know if it was specifically to Mars, but that was the idea of like, hey, for the same money, almost, we could actually blanket them with these tiny ones. Cast our net wide? Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of things that you send into space that sort of seem cheap and disposable, I've got a story for us. Unless, I'm sorry, Matt, was there still more uh, well, to there's, the- There's a couple more things. So okay. I'll, ju- I'll just finish off the story sure. saying, yeah. um, so that they note that hypoxia has been shown to increase levels of dopamine, which results in hallucinations, feelings of euphoria- near-death experiences and out-of-body sensations of floating or flying. And according to their paper, images envisioned in such a hallucinatory state may appear to float on the cave surfaces. Um, and also, I'm just going to jump forward a little bit, but you, you know, you can read the whole story there. But this is where they get a little bit speculative, like you were saying, Brian. So <laughs> that, it says, like, based on analysis of more recent society's beliefs, the researchers suggest that caves and rock shelters are likely to have been viewed as portals to an underground world associated with prosperity and growth. Mm. The rock face itself seen as a tissue connecting the here and now and the world beyond, allowing humans to maintain a connectedness with the cosmos. Um, among later cultures, they refer to the Inca, who considered caves as portals enabling contact with the ancestors and, un- and the underworld. Um, and previous researchers have suggested that entering the underground environments of cave systems could have disoriented prehistoric people, leading to altered states of consciousness reflected mm-hmm. in the cave art. But opponents suggest that altered states of consciousness are achieved mostly through psychoactive plants, which are not proven to have been used in Europe in this period. Objects depicted in later cave art in Spain and Algeria have nevertheless been identified by some researchers as magic mushrooms. The Israeli study first reported in Haaretz is the first to identify the possible role of deliberately induced hypoxia, in achieving drug-like effects. And re- I picked this mushroom out of some Ibex shit. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the researchers have put forward various explanations for the creation of cave art that range from suggestions it was art for art's sake uh, to viewing the paintings as an attempt to gain control over animals and advantages in hunting. What we just saw um, uh, uh, just uh, a couple of days ago, we were Andy was out of town and kindly let us take over his place out in the desert and we went on a hike and saw um there's some there's some cave paintings up near you 
Oh yeah, yeah. I the first time I saw some of those, I assumed they were <laughs> some petroglyphs, as I believe they're called. Yeah, they they almost seem like modern graffiti, but obviously not with multi, not like spray paint colors. But I I didn't realize some yeah. of those were actually. Well, as well there's old a as couple. They are. A couple of the ones near you have been Defaced have been vandalized. Where yeah. they they've got a sign up there that sort of some people have painted over, have basically tried to sort of. Um make them look like they would have looked back in the day by painting over them with colored paint but that's like mm. you don't fucking do that that's not this is something from yeah, thousands like, tens of thousands of years ago leave it as it is yes the pigment has disappeared but don't doesn't mean like you should just go to home base and, or home <laughs> and, Depot draw, and draw and draw a jesus monkey exactly yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah well what if it was just the kids room and it's just art to entertain the kids or look at there's like, oh the, yeah the, the picture they have in the story there's all those how come there's these multiple iterations like that horse head there's like four in a row it's like what does that mean were they practicing were they yeah i mean that's the thing it could be i think that that is a risk when it comes to i'm sure that the the professionals the professional archaeologists are aware of these risks of yeah of bias but there is definitely the danger of attaching far too much importance on something and far too much meaning on something when it could just be exactly that just someone was bored like, yeah. it, it, you know, if, if you're just sitting on the rock and you've got nothing to do for 10 hours and there's a piece of stone <laughs> next to you, maybe it was just someone doodling. What will I draw? Well, I know how to draw something that looks like the outline of an ox. I'll just do that for a bit. Yeah. And now someone's like, they are worshipping the gods to command the ox to hunt. <laughs> I know, someone was just fucking was waiting for an ox to come past and was... Right, or right. Was just, just that was one sleeping. day I was fixated on it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Just, just having a crack at it, um, but yeah, there's... I do think that it's fascinating that we still that here just this behavior though that there are. It's not just one instance. There are cave paintings, like, and these caves have been painted m- multiple times over thousands of years, and in all around like it's place. So it's a fascinating thing. And then what do we do today? We still we live in these houses. We close off the cave entrance with doors. And we put art on the walls still. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. We right. hang wall. You know, we don't want our kids drawing on walls, but but we hang art on the wall. Like, it's interesting when things like that connect to our ancestors that long ago. I, I, I do wonder what people in tens of thousands of years from now will attach far too much importance on. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That we were doing now. Right. It's, you can't even see. Like, there's something that's right under our noses. And yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to grasp all the intricacies of how the human brain works. And, <laughs> and Matt, there's actually, if you're interested in pursuing that line of thinking a little bit deeper, there's yeah. a course. There's a course that you could actually use to tell you more about that. You are kidding. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great course, indeed. This is plus. plus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know our spots are the Great Courses Plus. They've been with us for a long time. We love what they do. Um, and by the way, if you haven't signed up, free 14 day trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Hey, hey, Andy, have you, have you encountered anyone recently who also ha- has signed up to the Great Courses Plus and enjoyed its work? Funny, funny you should mention that. This <laughs> came up as I was sitting in the green room with my fellow Jeopardy tournament players. Uh, just spontaneously, people were talking about their preparation and multiple Tournament of Champions competitors use the Great Courses Plus. 
to, to get ready for the tournament. Uh, specifically, two of them were watching a, a course on classical music, which I wish I had checked out also. Um, but yeah, there's so much here. And obviously, if, if people who are getting ready for Jeopardy are doing it, that, that, that says as much to vouch for it as we can. Um, but this course that I've been getting into post Jeopardy is called Your Best Brain. It's taught by uh, John Medina, and it probes the origins of consciousness, intelligence, and and more. And it um, shows scientifically proven methods to improve your memory, boost your creativity, and keep your mind sharp. And this is just one of hundreds of courses on pretty much any topic. We can't say any topic because it's not literally every topic. But uh, yeah, you could definitely <laughs> find some topics if you're creative enough that they haven't got covered, like. Like go weird, and maybe they don't mm-hmm. have it. But pretty much any academic topic and many non-academic topics, we they they've got they've 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 got depth and breadth to their courses. Yeah. And like we've told you before, you can listen to them and watch them across multiple different platforms. Picking up where you left off as you get home from listening to it as a podcast, and then putting it on the smart TV to watch the rest of the lectures. Uh, yeah. And and we've got a free trial. That's right. If you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably, you'll get a free 14-day trial. And for a limited time, you can sign up and save 20% off the annual membership. And actually, we have a stat here. There are over 13,000 audio and video lectures. So I think you'll have a tough time uh, running out of things, especially in those two weeks. So go check it out. They've got great information presented by incredible experts. It's information you can trust, which is obviously an important and rare concept these days. So... Give it a try. There are a couple of Neil Tyson ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I know you don't know this, and I don't have to say this, but I've, I'm not using that service, but I've bought several of the great courses. Yeah, everybody I've talked to, not everybody, I'm sorry, a lot of people I've talked <laughs> to <laughs> have turned out to have already been uh, fans and, and listeners, readers of, of some of their courses. So. so once again, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. So, um, Brian, you were talking about fast, cheap, and out of control and sending low-cost robots to space. I've got a story courtesy of listener Justin Broad that's a little bit similar to that, or at least mm-hmm. it's about sending something that's traditionally associated with being low-cost into space and that my namesake appreciates a uh, wooden satellite. The world's first wooden satellite will launch by the end of 2021. Are you, big... are you not upset that you're not going to be the first wooden space? <laughs> I, yeah. If only... Uh, so when you think of creating an object that'll travel 40,000 kilometers an hour as it pushes up and out of the atmosphere, um, ready to live out its days, rapidly circling Earth in orbit, the material that comes to mind would probably not be wood, maybe heat-resistant alloys or even a lightweight polymer, but most wouldn't even consider building a satellite out of wood. While a Finnish collaboration thinks you're wrong, and they're going to prove it by the end of 2021. In a press release published last week, Arctic Astronautics, UPM, Plywood, and Hold have announced they'll be launching the world's first ever wooden satellite into orbit in an effort to further understand just how durable plywood can be. And this is true. It's powered by you put your feet through the bottom and you you run. <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> right into orbit. And, and then the signal that to lift off is like is a bird that you pull on the tail and it just gives the signal out. And then it goes, it's a living. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. That's the bird that 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 types that that uses its beak to draw the picture. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it may sound insane, but these guys know what they're doing. The satellite called the WISA WoodSat is based on a current nano satellite available for hobbyists to purchase and send their own satellite into orbit, which I believe this is, we've talked about this before, this concept of CubeSats that are 10 yes. centimeters on a side. And I think only cost about, for 10 grand, you can put anything in a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cube and have it go up into space for yeah, 10 or 20 grand. And, and those satellites aren't powered. They're just things that slowly, you know, 
Eventually, the orbit degrades. Right. Over the course of, I think it's usually like 30 days. Now I'm not reading the article. I'm just remembering uh, CubeSats in general. But um, so, yeah, it's coated. uh, It's made of plywood, coated to deal with the intense conditions of space. Of course, it'll have to log its progress. So it's been Log its progress. Oh, I didn't even. (laughs) Nice. I don't even know if they realized that. (laughs) So it's been fitted with a sensor suite and some cameras attached to a specialized space age selfie stick. Which this artist rendering, I, it's not actually a zoom at the end of like a telescoping thing, is it? Yeah, it, it does look rendering. like not a zoom, a, a, a GoPro. Yeah, it's like the satellites going, take a selfie of me with the Earth behind yeah. me. Yeah, and it, it, it does look like one of those sort of grabber hands things that you buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you buy at the fair. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. Uh, the wooden satellite with a selfie stick will surely bring goodwill and raise smiles, but essentially, this is a serious science and technology endeavor. In addition to testing plywood, the satellite will demonstrate accessible radio amateur satellite communication, host several secondary technology experiments, validate the Kitsat platform in orbit, and popularize space technology to the public. Well, that's a, that's a that, they're putting a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on this thing to do all these things at once. Yeah, did I mention I'm made of wood? Yeah. <laughs> That's what Yari Mekinen, uh, Wisa Woodsat mission manager, said in a statement. Uh, if the mission is a success, it would validate treated wood as a cheap and available alternative for use in space vehicle applications. NASA probably won't be sending all wooden satellites into orbit in the near future, but it's certainly an interesting concept that will generate a lot of interest in the continued exploration of space. I think a wooden spacesuit is my new idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad Just Actually, the- we. Just for the Dutch astronauts, like full wood all the way. <laughs> Get we did your that space story ab- on. about turning wood transparent and having it have like m- more strength than than glass. Yeah, that's I forgot true. the details of that. Yeah, it's it's a really strange technique of like slicing it very thinly, and and I, I for- we we forget our stories as soon as we talk about them. But uh, oh, yeah, wood's wood's more versatile than you might think. Really? Stronger than glass, though? It's like, seems well, like paper isn't very strong. No, I forgot the exact... What- it, it's um, it's the fact that it doesn't ha- it's not as brittle as glass. Oh, that's oh. what it was. I think. So, because, yeah, cause wood is much stronger than glass in certain directions, in certain facets. Um, I had a really stupid old joke where I was... Th- ta- I was always fascinated by mirrors... And it was like thinking about the history of mirrors and when the first mirrors. And I was like, the first mirrors were made of wood. <laughs> like, just like, it's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now all of a sudden, maybe it's possible. Kind of. Yeah. So this WoodSat's based on a current nanotechnology or nanosatellite called KitSat, which is a fully functioning tiny satellite that can be used by universities and hobbyists to get real world satellite experience. And it's currently wow. on sale to the public for around 1500 well, that wouldn't be like the orbiting cost or, or launching cost. That's just the material satellite. That's still cheap. Yeah. Uh, and in keeping with its tiny stature, the Kitsat's mainly used for educational purposes and less so for continual research. Uh, the Woodsat will be 10 centimeters cubed, one kilogram heavy, and equipped with nine small solar cells to keep itself alive in orbit. It'll be carried into space by Rocket Lab's Electron launch vehicle, a two-stage rocket that's been in service since 2017. It'll lift off from New Zealand by the end of the year. So you can expect to see a tiny wooden satellite in low orbit very soon if you look really hard. Interesting. It still seems like, I mean, obviously it's a bit of a gimmick. Like, uh, I don't doubt you could get wood to be, to, to, you know, in a pinch, if that's the only material you had, it could work. But, like, it would never be preferable to right. some... Well, you like you said, the, the company density. behind it well, is like a plywood company. So they're like, it is yeah. something sort of promotional, but then it's doing multiple things. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's cool. Sorry, I shouldn't. Anything that captures the public's imagination and inspires <laughs> more space. You time. know, the very last bit there about how it'll be carried into space by Rocket Labs, electron launch vehicle, a two-stage rocket that's been in service since 2017. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, this is one of the things that frustrates me about flat earthers. Mm-hmm. To, to posit that all space programs are a lie. That that is like they don't. I don't think they even do realize what you're saying because it's not just NASA, right? It's it's hobbyists. the space. It's it's yeah. it's governments and it's hob- It's every. It's like there are other. There's SpaceX. There's every company involved in launching a satellite. Every telecommunications company that depends on the communication of all these networks of satellites. It's like. You're, you're talking millions of people that don't know each other in different countries for companies, for governments. It's like, you know, it just gets out of hand where you're like, pretty much everyone is in on the conspiracy. Yeah. It's just the myth of competence that or the, whatever the term for that is. Like one of the biggest problems with conspiracy theories is like it requires so ah. much competence in such big groups that we just don't see in the world. You don't see big groups of people. With no one messing up and everyone keeping secrets. And you know what? I Just the other day, two days ago, I had an interaction with someone on Twitter. And so I look at his Twitter account and he's both – so I interacted with him because he's an anti-vaxxer. And -hmm. then I did see him retweet something that indicated he's also a flat earther. Okay, so take the number of millions of people that have to be involved in every aspect of that lie. Every aspect of every space thing – even just satellites that are just telecommunications and cell phone companies, Verizon, all these companies, all of that. And he also thinks that the entire medical and scientific establishment is also indoctrinated was his term. <laughs> and, and, and that, so like once you get to that, so the millions of people, it's like, so you pretty much think everyone in the world is involved in at least one of these conspiracies. Like, which ones am I involved in? Right. Now yeah. now you're down to like a Truman Show level of conspiracy. <laughs> exactly. Where it's just like everyone, everyone is watching is in you. on it. Which is so egotistical also that everybody's trying to fool you because you're their top priority. Yeah. You know what? This stemmed from – I commented because a woman tweeted there was this anti-vax thing from – it looks like it's from a doctor. He's a chiropractor. He's not actually a doctor, but he doesn't make that clear. He just calls himself Dr. Something. And uh, somebody wrote, oh, he's a chi- chiropractor. Somebody said, whatever happened to do no harm? And someone said, well, he's a chiropractor. He's not a doctor. I said, oh, so do not do no harm doesn't apply. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, she said, this woman said, I don't want to take it either. Why are all these doctors and nurses? Why are so many doctors and nurses getting vaccinated and i wrote something like yes exactly why are the people <laughs> who know the most about it why are all the medical and scientific established i why are they there must be a reason uh, <laughs> you know it's like you're so close to understanding right yeah. all the people just, that know the most about you did it 99 percent of the work there and then at the last minute you just drove into <laughs> yes. the walls and that's when this guy said They've And I said that. It's like there must be a reason. And he said they've all been indoctrinated. And it's like I don't even know what that means. So you <laughs> – like the entire scientific and medical establishment has been taught this lie about vaccines and how they work and uh, – You just get so drained. It's fun for a while and then you're like, but come on. Let's just get back to reality now. We're yeah. comedians and we'd even like to get back to reality. <laughs> By the way, did ever, have all three of us uh, done both rounds? I'm not judging if you haven't yet, but I um, have. I'm, I'm, I'm more than two weeks out, two shots of Moderna. 
two weeks what are you? before your sorry. No, no, we, no, no. I'm already past two weeks. I'm, oh, I'm okay. clear. Uh, I'm I'm in exactly the same position in fourteen hours time. <laughs> Great. Uh, I'm, I think that's I'm the, like something's going to change right then. Or maybe I'm 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 just over a week. I think it was a week ago. Friday was my. Was and you my know what? Week. I was really lucky because I was in the last group. I wouldn't have been vaccinated for a while. Oh, it's really opening up now. But here's the best dating story. On OKCupid, I met someone, and we never talked about dating. We immediately went to this topic of um, COVID. And she gave me some advice because of some stuff she does. So she told me that a couple hours from Raleigh, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, but she said two hours away today, um, they have a surplus of vaccine in a little rural area. Um, would you like to go there? You can, if you so, you can go to this website, sign up. And I did. And they let me in and I decided to do it. And I drove two hours and I got the shot and I drove home. And a month later, I did it again. And it was like, seemed kind of extreme, but it was kind of fun. And I had nothing to do that day. So I did it. Well, yeah. You've, as someone, as a road comic, you've, yeah. uh, we, we have driven two hours there and back for <laughs> substantially for less. less important things. <laughs> you know, I love, there's an, an, a musician I really love. His name is <clears throat> Alejandro Escovito. He's, oh, yeah, yeah. He's from Austin. He, and and also Sheila E, the E is for Escovito. That's his niece, um, the old Sheila E from the Prince crew. Um, I think it's his niece. Anyway, Alejandro Escovito is amazing. Um, and he has this great song and there's a line and it's about being on the road in the 70s. The line is more miles than money. <laughs> um, and there's more to it, but that like line always hit because how many you just said it? How yeah. many times have you driven so far for just this little page? Yeah, I think it, I think it was Patton Oswalt who said, "I I think I'm hope I'm attributing it to Patton, and I hope I'm quoting him vaguely closely enough." But it was you know the you the amount you sort of as a new comic you would you drive two hours there, two hours back for a hundred dollar gig. Yeah, just like and, and if, if someone told you, yeah, if like someone told you that two hours from here there was a bucket with a hundred dollars in it, <laughs> would you drive there to pick it up? <laughs> no. It's also that amount of stage time. It's like the stage time doesn't exactly. compare to the driving. You think that I got paid for just the time I was on stage? Like you know, that's the thing. Like as things evolved, I think all of us, if you're lucky in comedy, you get to a point where the amount you make per hour can be kind of obscene. It's, it, it sounds like it, but it's also like being a doctor. It took me years to get here. Right. And it also took me <laughs> days to get here by airplane and bus and car and right. hovercraft. And, and also you can only, if you work out your hourly rate for being on stage, it's ridiculous, but yes. you, you can't, right. you can only do that one hour on stage per day or maybe two if there's a late show. So it's not like you earn your hourly rate. Well, hang right. on, wait, it, if you, if you, if you work that out like nine to five, then you're earning like <laughs> you're yeah. a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, but you can't. There, you can't do a gig an hour. Maybe you can now in the world of Zoom. Maybe you could right. do it through oh, time zones different time and zones. just keep jumping across and do like a day of gigs of our but sets. You're right. But right, it's it's that we don't generally work the whole day. The show you're you're there, but you're at a comedy club that week typically, and you're working for them, but it's only one hour. Yeah, but yeah. you put all that just like a. Doctor went to medical school, you know. Oh, that Picasso story that might be apocryphal about him drawing something on a napkin and then, I don't know, charging, saying, <gasps> yeah, give yeah. me 500 bucks. Someone's like, that took you 30 seconds. Like, no, yeah. it took me 30 years or whatever. Right. Better version of the story is. Yeah. 
Can we write some but, throwaway stupid one-liner on a napkin and sell it to somebody? Right. Yeah. Oh, does it have to be a, a non-fungible, an NFT? An NFT, right, an NFT bar napkin. Oh, yeah, we still haven't, in, in the world of things we haven't followed through on yet, we still haven't tried to <laughs> upload um, the bit from three episodes ago where we talked about how NFTs are bullshit as an NFT to see what would happen. We haven't applied to become astronauts. We no, haven't we haven't. made our own NFT yet. We're bad at following. Oh, they, they, the European spot. Space Agency is now looking for astronauts. I, I think we've probably aged out of it by now. I don't I think, know. Was it was it Helen? I think it might have been Helen, friend of the show and friend of me, who sent that, who tweeted that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I could now. What? So when I was in Joshua Tree, just driving up into the hills now, I think I need to go to a, a like an ENT doctor because like my right, only my right ear, but my right ear just keeps popping mm. or like keeps rather keeps not popping. So I was like ah. in physical pain. And that was just from, like, I couldn't get we're, it to equalize. And, and we're that, only like 2,500 feet up. We're not like that high. Right, exactly. So I'm thinking space right now is probably not the best yeah, place for me. It might not <laughs> like, if I, can't, if I can't deal with, like, driving half a mile up a hill. Uh, so Maybe um, space isn't for you. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if that's, like, I don't know what the causes of that. I don't know why. It's only ever my right, and it's been getting worse. But it, it's only ever my right ear. I bet that's something someone can do something about. I figure it probably I is. I, I don't know why I'm assuming that, but it I feels don't know. Like I think I should be pre-med if you want me to take a look. Yeah, <laughs> I, I should probably go and see a real doctor as well, rather than just asking our guests and/or saying it on a podcast <laughs> in the vague hope that there's an ENT doctor who listens to this. I have some theories. Although I have theories. got some surprisingly good medical advice from this podcast in the past. You know what? I, that's actually, I wonder if anybody's ever started a medical podcast just to avoid paying medical bills and just get a doctor on every week that's only someone related to a problem you need to solve. <laughs> oh, I've totally just thought of that. The new I'm show called Can You Look I've, at This Mole? This has completely been on my mind because I'm having a problem, a little back problem and a knee problem. And I'm thinking of like, I might have to just go to a physical therapist and I would rather interview a physical right, therapist right, and, yeah. and then go, well, for instance, what could this be? <laughs> and I totally thought the exact thing you said. It's like I could continually interview, give them, it's like, come on my show and then, uh, you know, you'll be you'll 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 get this platform for yourself, and I'll get free medical care. <laughs> well, Matt and I, Matt and I, have written for some science shows, including one about building elaborate things, whether those are rockets or Mars landers or pipe organs. Um, and most of that show, I would just cold call people and say, "Hey, I'm writing for a TV show." They never ask what the show is, right. and then they'll talk to me for two hours about how to build a jetpack. And I'm like, I could have just lied and called this dude <laughs> and had a great right. story about so a like, jetpack. Scientists are. You know, one of the most scientists get into science because they really like science, and th- th- it's rare that they actually get to talk about things that they do in detail to to a layperson who is above average level of interested and competent. Yeah, you know what you just reminded me of. So I, I I've got a Mitch story for you, Hedberg. Oh, nice. One of the times we worked together that was unusual was um, it was at the Funny Bone in. Green Bay, Wisconsin, and our friend J.R. Brow, an old comic oh, friend from, from I, Austin. I've, I've opened for J.R. Yeah. yeah. I think he was headlining, and Mitch was middling. I think Mitch was at a place that 
I don't know if he was just a middle or maybe he was headlining someplace too, but JR was headlining and he was middling and I had a week off. I was somewhere nearby and Mitch was like, Hey, they need an opening. Do you want to come open? So like, I wouldn't have, I was already, I was middling for that club, but I went in and opened that week because I was in the neighborhood and had that week off in between gigs. So it was great because it was, we all liked each other, you know, JR and Mitch and me and the condo that they put us in. So comedy clubs, they typically either put you in a hotel and each comic gets its own hotel, their own hotel room, its own hotel room. <laughs> and, or they put you in a condo, they keep an apartment and the comedians share it. So the three of us shared this apartment for a week. And it, and typically they're not decorated at all. Well, Mitch and JR and I, we went out and hit some secondhand stores and bought a bunch of crap, put <laughs> things on the walls. We bought a little mini foosball thing. And, uh, and then we, we, uh, went into this like, we bought some old suits. Now, none of us wear suits. None of us were like dressed that nice on stage, but we bought some old suits and we're like, this would be funny. It's like, we'll come in on Friday night. Like we'll be wearing these suits. Ha ha. So they're bad. You know, they don't fit us great. Or other. Of course, of the three of them, Mitch looked great in his. I looked like I was wearing some old man's suit and Mitch <laughs> found a way to make it look really hip. Of course, his fit. But anyway, then we're in a mall and there was a tuxedo store. <laughs> this is where this is what you just reminded me of because like hey what are we okay so I walk in and I I said hey we're the comedians from the funny bone but I gave no evidence that we were the comedians from the funny <laughs> bone I simply said we're the comedians from the funny bone and would you give us tuxedos to wear on stage Saturday night and it was in the middle of the summer and uh so uh cuz we were thinking it's not like new year's eve it's like but halfway to new year's eve like it could be so they I did this whole spiel and then the guy goes, let me get the manager. And I had to do it a second time. And the guy just said, yeah. And then he <laughs> like, he, we, you know, he measured us and, uh, they said we could come back and pick him up on Saturday and for free. And then he didn't even ask this. I said, do you have a little sign for your store and we could put it on stage? And he's like, mm, I don't like, he didn't even care. I'm like, we'll promote. So what was his, <laughs> what was in it for him? Three guys are just going to take tuxedos and not even promote your store. <laughs> I don't yeah, know why he said yeah. yes, but we did it. And the Friday night we went in wearing these suits and we thought it was very funny. But on Saturday night we came in on in tuxes and part of the time we were all on stage together. And the thing that kills me is that one of us had a video. There's video. Of, we were on stage and I know sometimes like JR was playing a song and I'm on camera on stage with, with, uh, with the camera and Mitch is up there too. And we're just goofing off and making it like it's a new year's Eve show. Yeah. And it was absurd in green Bay, Wisconsin in the summer a million years ago. That's some great, like rat pack sort of, I could picture yeah. you all, I'm sure you didn't, but you should have all had cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have cigarettes, but, but I do have photo, I do have photos of us in the suits. Not, and I think I have the tuxes. Yeah, I have some photos of us in the suits and the tuxes, but I don't know where that video is. I do have some oh, photos though. That would be cool to find. Yeah. So interesting. But what was even in it for them? Why would he give yeah, us tuxedos? Yes. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, sometimes just people. Just the proximity of something that even alludes to fame sort of right. makes people sometimes just go, oh, okay, yeah, well, yeah, of course you need a tuxedo. Of course. I had to push him, though, to give me a sign to promote his company. <laughs> yeah. Or I wonder if maybe part of it is also sometimes the more outlandish a request, the more you kind of have someone on their right. heels and they're likely to just say, yeah, because they don't know <laughs> what to say. You yeah, know, like, there's you no know, like, sort of yeah. procedure for this. Yeah, there's one no, time like, company a policy. Mine. No, I'm I'm afraid we've had too many issues in the past with the comedians <laughs> at the podcast, uh, the uh, right. at the local club, uh, you know, damaging the suits, That's so we can't right. do it anymore. 
You know, one time a friend of mine, when he was a kid, he stole a drum set from a big store, uh, like a department store. Uh, he just loaded it up on a th- on a dolly and rolled it out of the store, and no one stopped him. <laughs> because you know obviously he paid for that who would roll a whole drum set out of a store yeah. but nowadays you can't even do that i don't think any store i don't think you can get past the door right, right. without a, something buzzing or something but yeah I'm sure. this was a long time ago <laughs> this was back in the stone age, <laughs> stone age. <laughs> uh should we i think we have time for one more story if you guys well, both well, do. There's a, probably some science there there's a good a, a good new science story that's a potentially big medical story in the world of vaccines. We we talked about vaccines and, you know, obviously Ooh, vaccines yeah. are big for COVID reasons, but uh, they're big for other reasons as well. In fact, they play into each other. I, uh, malaria now potentially for the first time has a an effective vaccine. Hmm. Amazing. And it's actually developed by some of the same team who developed the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Okay. So it's not the, tech- the new mRNA technology. I'm actually not sure. Has, I, I've seen it's going to like be useful in other things. I, I need to find out because I've looked through this story and I've different versions of the story on different news websites claim different things about the technology it uses. It definitely overlaps with some of the technology, some of the newer technologies used for the COVID vaccines. But I can't get a straight answer on whether it's the mRNA technology or right. if it's the version that the uh, Novavax uses, mm-hmm. where it's um, it's uh, genetically engineered protein cells that uh, that resemble the outside spike protein, which is what the the Novavax, which hasn't come out yet, uses. Oh. So it, it mimics. It doesn't mimic the whole molecule. It just mimics like the the little the outside of it and just generates that. I think using, I think they use moths. I think they genetically engineer moths to generate. The proteins. I correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Um, and I can't. F- I can't it's find out which one these fetuses. Right. <laughs> well, that's the um. Uh, which one is it? That's the Johnson and Johnson <laughs> uses that. Uh, but this malaria vaccine has proved to be 77 percent effective in early trials and could be a major breakthrough against the disease. Says the University of Oxford team behind it. Uh, malaria kills more than 400,000 people a year, mostly children in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, this is it. I, I, I think anyone who knows you know, trivia is aware of the, it's a bit of a chestnut of a question, but the most dangerous animal in the world, yes. and it's the, the mosquito by quite, quite some way, uh, kills more people than any of the stereotypically, uh, predatory yeah. or dangerous animals i wonder is it just malaria or are there other malaria is probably the main one um for mosquitoes dengue i think fevers? yellow fever oh, dengue, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, is dengue maybe that one of them is the, the one tetsi fly and i uh in australia they weren't just working on malaria right in that lab that we visited in um cairns i thought that was also dengue but maybe not uh yes i think it is dengue um, diseases that are spread to people by mosquitoes include Zika virus, West Nile virus, chikungunya virus, dengue, and malaria. Uh, there we go. That's a lot. Yeah. But malaria, 400,000 people, mostly children a year. Oh, yeah. And yellow fever's on there as well. Was that on the list? That I think you said um, that just now. Um, so, yeah, the mosquitoes kill loads of things, but uh, I think... Uh, through multiple diseases but malaria is the big one and uh despite many vaccines being trialed over the years this is the first to meet the required target uh 
it could have a major public health impact. When trialed in 450 children in Burkina Faso, the vaccine was found to be safe and showed high-level efficacy over 12 months of follow-up. Larger trials in nearly 5,000 children between the ages of five months and three years will now be carried across four African countries to confirm the findings. Um, it's caused by parasites that are transmitted through the mosquito bites. Although preventable and curable, the World Health Organization estimates there were 229 million cases of worldwide uh, malaria in 2019 and 409,000 deaths. Oh. The illness starts with symptoms like fever, headaches, and chills, and without treatment can protect, progress quickly to severe illness and death. So when we were in Australia, when we were in, um, uh, in Cairns, Cairns right? yeah, yeah it, was the, it was the very first stop on our trip, and uh, we went to the the mosquito lab where they have like just rooms of mosquitoes and the uh, a room where simulated front just, porches <laughs> yeah there was like they had them in the cages and everything but then there's like a bit beyond the netting where you're just in an environment that is that mimics different types of sort of terrain environments and they just pay college students to sit in there and get bitten and while they mm. test different ways of it's deterring so crazy mosquitoes um mm. but Study author Adrian Hill, director of the Jenner Institute and professor of vaccinology at the University of Oxford, said he believes the vaccine was the first to reach the World Health Organization's goal of at least 75% efficacy. The most effective malaria vaccine to date had only shown 55% efficacy in trials in African children. The tr so these trials started in 2019, long before COVID appeared, and the Oxford team developed its COVID vaccine with AstraZeneca on the strength of this research into malaria. Uh, a malaria vaccine has taken much longer to come to fruition because there are thousands of genes in malaria compared to only about a dozen in, in coronavirus, and a very high immune response is needed to fight off the disease. That's a real technical challenge, says Professor Hill. The vast majority of vaccines haven't worked because it's very difficult. However, he said the trial results mean, meant that the vaccine was very deployable and has the potential to have a major public health impact. Yes, yeah, 77% is... I mean, that's still, you know, that's still a lot of people getting through, but that's a huge reduction. Yeah. yeah. And maybe, maybe like the uh, uh, COVID vaccines, maybe if it doesn't save your life, it might reduce the it, severity. Yeah. So, yeah, if it doesn't, sorry, it doesn't uh, stop you from getting it. You mean it? It's right, just, right, 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 right. Yeah. It, so here's something interesting. I was, dial, was curious because they gave these numbers and you're like, well, is this worse? You know, you know how... The whole history of our experience with COVID has been, well, such and such kills more, well, such and such kills Ugh. more, which most of those turned out to not. That was the most frustrating thing when they kept saying, well, flu killed this many. Yeah, in a whole year. We're two months into this. What part of this don't you understand? It's like, and then you you see that it blew everything away, except for it became the number three in the U.S. Yeah, well, that, that's campaign. also still the story that you hear sometimes that flu still, is more fatal. And I like, know. like, I so don't know. So here's these numbers. Check I can't think numbers. of anyone I know directly who lost who lost someone to flu. I'm sure I do know people who lost older relatives to flu. Right. But I can, I can reel off like, I can reel off ten people, just in nearly all of them in comedy uh in the uk and the us who have lost a close family member to covid yeah i haven't year. lost anyone i know but i do know that but i definitely know a lot of people that lost people yeah and, and it turns out we talked about this early on last year i don't know why this didn't become a bigger story but um the the flu numbers everyone cites are are estimates based on right like like um 
excess deaths, like they, they aren't actually confirmed flu deaths. So if you took, if you're comparing confirmed COVID deaths and confirmed flu deaths, then like the flu number you should be talking about was more like, uh, under 10,000 a year, not 50 or 60, whatever they were saying. Yeah. And at that point we'd already had, you know, how many, Oh, not only, of, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's not an apples to apples comparison to begin no. with. And also I remember someone like, I think it was that, I can't think of her name right now, but, uh, conservative voice. She, um, like she picked a number. She said the flu killed 50 or 60,000 people in 2017 or 18 or something like she, and then compared that. And it's like, interesting. You didn't use last year's results. You use the year before that because that's the highest in the past decade. Right. And again, you know what? Like, even, that's not that fair. Number, even that number <laughs> even was that not one. confirmed flu. Oh, that was estimates right. from the CDC and based on patterns. And it's been exceeded. Anyway, we blew it away five, right. by 10 times as much. Yeah. So here's something I just looked up to compare in this. It said there were 229 million cases of malaria worldwide and 409,000 deaths. So I, the comparison. So coronavirus cases, this is 229 million per year malaria. And we're only up to 148 million worldwide Corona cases. Okay. And, but, but. Only 409,000 deaths at malaria, 3 million worldwide COVID. So the COVID stats are even worse. Fewer cases, more deaths. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly. It's it's very – like when we were bringing up that second vaccine stuff, I was thinking back on all the various ruminations I had last spring, predictions about just sit on the front porch, stare out at the desert and worry about the year to come. But like none of the things I worried about are – I never would have guessed we would have a vaccine that's pretty damn effective, but that tons of people wouldn't show up for their second shot, which is happening in, in the numbers of millions right now. I'm like, oh, God. Right. All these thing, all these solutions that I didn't even think we would get, and now we can't even use them for human reasons. Uh, you know, so when you do – so when I did this Google search, you know how when you get your results page, there will be all these related questions – and when I first wrote, asked something about malaria, I saw one of those other questions that was like, can you get, it said something like, can you get an STD from mosquitoes? And I clicked to see what it said. And it answered something I always wondered about because back in the days of AIDS, they always said that, you know, there was a thing, can you get AIDS from mosquito? Cause it's blood, it's bloodborne. Can you get AIDS from mosquito? And they always said, no, they don't carry it. And I just saw one little fact that I didn't know. The reason that mosquitoes can't carry HIV is because they lack this receptor that the HIV virus needs to get into the cell. So it can't carry it, which is why you can't get it from a mosquito. But it's because of the lack of a receptor. So the virus, you know, like they could suck your HIV infected blood, but the virus can't find a foothold in the mosquito. Well, interesting, I, interesting. I would also imagine, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's, I guess the in people's heads, it's sort of working like it would be like the equivalent to sharing a syringe where yeah, it, yeah. Goes, it, it pierces <laughs> yeah, your skin sense. and it has some of the blood and it goes straight into the other skin. So for that, it wouldn't necessarily need right, to have right, been picked right. up by the mosquito. But I think part of the issue is mosquitoes don't feed on two different humans back to back, like instantly back to back. And uh, and the HIV virus, again, please, listeners, correct me if I'm just spouting bullshit here, but um, the HIV virus is incredibly unstable. Like it doesn't survive. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't survive outside of the body and outside of blood and exposed to any of the elements for very long at all. Mm -hmm. Like unlike you know the cold virus that could just float through the air and live for 
hours if not days and you can pick it up from anywhere like a hiv unless it's very much like direct blood to blood transfer is doesn't doesn't survive so if it goes into one mosquito it's probably the virus is probably already dying very quickly and then what like but even if it sucks your hiv infected blood and then lands on me maybe like and you're right not immediately after cuz it's full and then when it does there's really no transfer of blood back to me. It's sucking blood. It doesn't want to give up any blood. It's not its food. It's not going to dribble its right. food back into your and, bloodstream. And, the, and also <laughs> the amounts involved as well. Like the difference between the yeah. volume, the volume in whatever the sort of equivalent of the needle part of a mosquito is compared to the volume of a hypodermic syringe, which is substantially longer and, and oh, wider. But just shared needles. That isn't a lot, though. Because I was also thinking about that thing of like, you know, infections are kind of dose dependent, like of the... You know, how much you get exposed like load, to someone's yeah. breath. Yeah, that viral load thing. So you would think that – but sharing needles is a risk even though it's got to be small amounts. It is. It is. But but again, you're sort of talking about orders of magnitude smaller when you're talking about a mosquito. Yeah. yeah. And it's a little tiny syringe. <laughs> Could we steal you for like another few minutes to do an extra yeah. story for the Patreon listeners? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. But in the meantime, sure. Brian, where can our listeners find you and find everything that you're doing? Yeah, I don't have anything real specific right now, but I'm at Science Comedian everywhere. And on YouTube in particular, there's plenty to see of me on YouTube, but I'm going to be doing a lot more. So that's where I'll be doing more live streaming and edited stuff. So I'm Science Comedian on uh, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, ScienceComedian.com. Um, wow, you got it. You- so subscribe to my I, – I would ask you to subscribe to my YouTube. And uh, there's stuff there, but there's more coming soon. Nice. Excellent. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. You can, find, you can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com. That's where we put the links up to all of the stories we cover and also our Patreon and PayPal links. Thank you, everyone who supports the show like that. And also everyone who supports the show by spreading the word, by, you know, telling friends, tweeting, Facebooking, uh, writing to The Guardian about us, all the good things, all the normal <laughs> ways you spread the word and writing nice things about us on Apple Podcasts, as we now have to call it, rather than iTunes. And, you know, we've been saying that wrong for about three years. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions comments clarifications stories you'd like us to cover uh medical advice information on what i should do about my ears uh <laughs> corrections to my vague well, guesses you know about what, uh, malaria and and hiv and, and mosquitoes you know what vincent van gogh did about his ear problem oh, uh, well there we yeah Went to an uh, ear and nose and throat doctor yeah exactly okay. just Try, try to you know flush it out got a netty pot all the i think that's <laughs> i think that's what he did um at probably size on twitter and individually at andy t wood and at matt kershen if you want to message us directly and facebook.com slash probably science as well yeah. is the facebook page that we are very bad at checking but we do occasionally and thank you everyone <laughs> yeah. who messages us through that <laughs> uh, brian thank you very much for joining us thank you it was fun thanks for having me and listeners see you next time Thank you.